In the race to success, we're not all starting from the same place. Level the Pursuit seeks to fill in the gaps and provide accessible, bite-sized leadership lessons for anyone looking to improve their skills and prepare for the next step, whatever that might be. Welcome back, my friends. I hope you had a great week. Last week, we talked about introversion and extroversion and ways to make the most out of both personality types. Hopefully, if you had some opportunities to talk to someone who was opposite of you, you thought about ways to connect and to be a little bit more effective in your day-to-day -day life. Today, we're gonna to talk to Brigadier General Retired Rob Novotny. Besides being a command pilot who's flown more than half a dozen different airframes, he also has 500 combat hours defending our country. He's commanded at every level in the Air Force and he recently retired to start a consulting firm. With that, he's using his leadership and his operational experience to help companies get their innovative projects off the ground. Today, we're gonna to talk a little bit about his command experience and his perspectives on what that means for us. Welcome, sir. It's such a pleasure to have you, and hopefully we can have a great discussion today. Here's a beautiful thing. I'm not on active duty anymore. So. <laughs> you can say whatever you want. <laughs> are you going to show the video version of the podcast? So that is the goal. Actually, <laughs> yes. That is the goal. So my brother, so audio podcasting has a totally different audience than yeah. video or YouTube like podcasting. I can, I can have a drink and that's okay. Yes. Yes, you can do that. So yes, at some point I may want to expand into that. I don't understand. Like my brother's like, people want to watch a podcast. I'm like, why would anyone want to watch so, me talk? <laughs> I like watch the Joe Rogan podcast. So I listen to him. And then when you watch him, it's like totally different. It, it really is. It's kind of because you see those, you know, innate speaking, you know, facial expressions and hand expressions that really compliment or that really carry over the point. I mean, I just think it's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we'll see. I'm, I'm working toward it. The, the editing is different. Yeah. Um, I have to use different software. And so that's actually been the big hurdle is because I am not a super tech savvy stuff. I learned to do this, to do the podcast. I learned all of this stuff. So, yeah. um, I'm still, I'm still deciding how much, because it means I have to like put on makeup and, like, do my hair. and otherwise I'm like in a ponytail looking all frazzled. And so, um, it's authentic. It, well, it is. And I think that's probably good, but it's also, that was a huge metamorphosis. And I can only imagine what it must've been like for you, you know, transitioning from 06, which is obviously um, pretty high viz, but into being a flag officer, podcasting, I just, it's really vulnerable because I mean, command that you find out that you're on, like as a doctor, as an officer, I always felt like I was on, but as a doc, you kind of are less on when you're not in the doctoral, when you're walking down the hall of the hospital, people aren't necessarily paying attention to you as a female officer. They are as the commander. They absolutely are. Sure. They were, they remember more if I like drop an F-bomb at the bathroom door, hit me in the ass, than if I gave a brilliant commander's call. And so that was, so pod, go ahead. Oh, and yesterday, Dawn and I were walking in downtown Summerlin and this guy comes up to me, General Novotny, like, I, you know, he goes, we were at Lake and Heat together. He was an AFE troop. He just made senior master sergeant. He was with his wife. He, I mean, and I'm with my aunt who's in town and she's, she's only about six years older than me, right? So we're just hanging out, having a good time. And she's like, unbelievable that this guy comes out of nowhere and finds me. So I, I'm, I'm with you and you're on, you know, at Lake and Heath, for example, I couldn't go anywhere. There's nowhere to go after about, after about eight, nine months when people are kind of like, okay, we kind of know who the new boss is. Um, and you've seen that, right? You just can't go, especially as a woman, because I think you're exactly right. You know, when you're a woman, um, in a command position or as an officer, you're, you know, people are just going to look naturally to go, Oh, you know, because you're just in the minority of the, you know, there's still, everybody else is a white male for the most part. So, you know, you're yeah. going to stand out. Um, and that is, that can be to an advantage in some cases, but that's definitely very difficult because I've seen so many, um, I've seen so many women and minority leaders that have, that just, it's just so overwhelming in some cases. And you just gotta, you gotta figure out how to navigate that, that, that environment. I mean, it's almost creepy when I, so when I went to IUD, um, there were a handful 
of female officers, you know, a handful of, of females on the base period. And I had people from other services when I was in PT gear salute me. And obviously Air Force don't because they, because they don't have to, but Army does anyway. You know, if they, if they know your rank, they salute anyway. But that struck me. It's like they had seen me in uniform. They knew who I was enough, even though they're not even my service, let alone one of my, one of my troops. And they yeah. know to salute me. Well, a year and a half later, I'm back in San Antonio at the movies. And a dude comes up to me that I've never met. And he was like, hey, uh, ma'am, uh, you were one of the, you're a major uh, a captain or something at IUD last summer, weren't you? <laughs> I'm like, yes, I was, Creeper. Like, thanks so much for remembering me. <laughs> I'm like, wow. You stand out, right? It's, wow. just, it's just like, you know, and I, I don't, I mean, it's just like the zebra amongst the horses. You know, yeah. they kind of look the same, right? <laughs> but they definitely some differentiating features. And you're like, oh. I mean, when you see a guy that's seven foot tall, wow, look at that. I mean, that's our, you know, the most powerful sensors we have is our eyeballs. Sure. So overcomes everything else. But I think you just said something that's very interesting because you as a able-bodied heterosexual, you know, white male who walks in the room, dominates the room. How did you see that coming up in your career? Because you've had subordinates and colleagues and superiors that look all different but how did you see that aspect of people's seeing someone and then making that judgment and how did you approach it without a doubt we're just we're humans and we're fallible and everybody comes with biases and we come with backgrounds and experiences and i think um for me as a leader i always like to look i never ran from that right i always wanted to meet somebody and know where they were from i think the things i love the most about the air force was Everybody comes from different places, different walks of life. You know, in our time in the Air Force, uh, sexual orientation became uh, not a, not necessarily a, a prohibitive factor anymore. Um, I think we've grown up in a time where there was far more uh, diversity and inclusion in, in particular the latter part of our career. So I always embrace meeting somebody from a different walk of life, and I like to you know, talk about that and acknowledge that. But then the cool thing was, is everybody went to basic training of some sort and cut their hair short. And we all wear the same uniform and we conform to the same set of rules and code and, and, and values. Um, so, you know, that part, I always enjoyed going after that as a leader and, and, and getting to know people about that and making that authentic connection. Without a doubt, Everybody I grew up around with, for the most part, were white men like me, right? So my mentors were that way. My subordinates were that way. Just It's just a population demographic. Um, I will say I, I feel like uh, I grew up in Miami, Florida. So I grew up in a very multicultural area. I went to the Air Force Academy. I, you know, I, I, I had quite, I mean, there were quite a few women in my class, but it was definitely, you know, low teens percentage wise, 12, 13, 14%. And, um, and I had been around women in my very first fighter squadron. So my very first fighter squadron had female fighter pilots in it. So, you know, unlike, say, uh, Jeannie Levitt, who grew up um, as the first, um, I had, had seen women in, in fighter pilot positions growing up for, for a long time, definitely in maintenance. Um, but again, both those are very male-dominated career fields compared to other ones. So I guess, you know, to get back to your question, because I'm rambling and I apologize about that. I just was always somebody that was ready to confront the differences that we have and to explore those and understand them and to get to know people. And ultimately, I think we're all the same in a lot of ways. We all want to be more. We all got shorted somewhere. We all got slighted somewhere, some more than others. Um, we've all kind of come from, uh, you know, our own unique backgrounds. We all uh, are fallible and make mistakes. Um, I think most people genuinely have good heart. Um, about them. And so if we can kind of concentrate on those, then I think all the differences tend to fade away a little bit. And so that was kind of always my leadership style, just reach out and shake hands and get to know people and, and move out. Did I answer your question? I think we're kind of yeah. all over. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. There's no rules here. We don't have rules. We just, we just go where it goes. <laughs> so I, I really believe that. And what struck me, the reason that you stood out to me before we started meeting, you know, through your kids and, and actually, you know, professionally at Lake and Heath as the boss, when you talked about mission effectiveness, um, about doing, doing the right thing about doing the big picture success 
you included medics. 100%. Yeah. So no one does. And, and I think when we talk about marginalized, obviously, you know, we think about medics, you don't think of a, about a, a marginalized uh, population, but in the Air Force, um, you know, it's about the flyer in general. And so everything else exists to, to support that mission. But at the same time, you have professionals in all of those other very educated professionals and many of them who, right. and, and, and the ones that aren't school book educated, they're technical experts. How did you, did you, was that something you always had or did you get exposed to the different mission sets in a way that, that made you appreciate them or had, cause that's not, unfortunately in the flying community, we don't always see that appreciation for support and medicine and all that kind of stuff. We, it's really ops focused. So how did you, how did you cultivate that? One part would be is I wasn't a flyer to start out with. So I wanted to be, but I graduated from the Air Force Academy at a time when we were uh, curtailing pilot slots. So I had to go do something else and I worked on the staff. And I did uh, force what what is now in the force support world. You know, I did HR um, kind of stuff. I did uh, manpower, which is human factors engineering. And then I moved around the staff and I did other things, budgeting requirements. And I got to meet people from all over um, at the PACAF staff. And I was really kind of a bulletproof second lieutenant. So I really got taken everywhere. And so I got to meet so many really amazing things. And I was really, truly um, amazed at the expanse of capabilities and people and career fields that we had in the Air Force at a, at a young age when we went forward. Definitely, without a doubt, you know, as as I'm growing up in the fighter pilot community, I become very, you know, blinders on, focus on my career path and all that stuff. We had a great squadron um, led by uh, people like uh, Mike Holmes, who became four star, and Hawk Carlisle, who became four star, and all these great leaders. And our squadron had a fantastic relationship with our maintenance personnel we would go I would go out and work on jets when we deployed and we we really had a great time of understanding the the, the team building concept that would generate would generate our power as we moved out and so that made sense to me at a younger level tactically I needed maintenance and I needed ops and of course we had flight docs um uh Carrie Miller was my first flight surgeon um, she's a hand surgeon now in the in the Southern Virginia in the Tidewater area, and she was integral to the squadron. She deployed with us. I watched her fix people that were broken. I watched her keep us squared away when we were almost being broken. And, and <laughs> yes. so I kind of saw it from that tactical level as we moved up. So when we get to Lake and Heath, you know, uh, it's for me, it was a lot of reflection on, you know, what are we about at Lake and Heath? And, and to your point, you know, we existed at Lake and Heath to be a power projection platform to fly airplanes or to deploy forces forward into harm's way. And, and you well know this from your time on your medical deployment capability that where we sent you to get to Africa at least once in, in you know, for supporting President Obama. So, you know, when that was time to deploy or that we're going to move the civil engineering troops to Africa to fight Ebola when that was having the breakout, you know, uh, we were a power projection platform and every single person played a role in that. Otherwise, we would have cut them. You know, we're not, we don't have. Right. We're too lean. Right. Yeah. We would have contracted it out or we would have cut it or taken some kind of ridiculous cost savings. So I kind of walked in the gate at Lake and he said every single airman and their family in my mind, because I knew I could get you to work hypothetically. I could get you to work 12 hours if your family was happy, fun and taken care of. Right. Sure. If they're not, their kids are getting sick in the, in the CDC, right. Or the child development center or, or they're waiting six months to get something looked at because the hospital appointments are backed up. Well, they're not focused at work. So for me, it was, how do I get every single person um, involved? And, and fortunately, you know, everybody bought into that. I think just like you said, Mary, you know, and you just gotta, you know, we were all on that. I, I used to say, we're all on that string of, of the mission, right? So whatever the mission is, we all play a role in this, on that string. And maybe the, we'll take the fighter pilot that deploys and drops a bomb on ISIS, right? Well, they're at the very end of the string, right? And so they see the culmination of their efforts, but they may not recognize all the people back here that made them mm -hmm. built the airplane, built the weapon, put the fuel in the thing, you know, paved over the runway to make it, we could take off, back, 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 delivered the parts from supply, back, back, back. Got them physically, physically prepared to deploy. So they were in the right mental state of mind. They were healthy. They, they had out all their immunizations. They were prepped and ready to go. And maybe that's just a little bit further left on the string than the person dropping the bomb, but I can't cut the string over there, 
right? Or nobody's going to be able to, right? All these things have to work together, I think, in order to make it happen. So people bought that and that was, that was helpful. <laughs> it, it, it was, it was, and it was exciting to be part of to, you know, I think it made people feel when you drive to work and you see the number of surgeries on the marquee in right next to the number of bombs dropped. It's like, holy crap. You know, when I was in command, I had dental in my squadron and I would tell them, I'm like, do you think they can pull G's with a cavity? No, you can't do that. So you're important too. Now putting this back into kind of what's happening in the country right now, what advice would you give to leaders who are trying to instill that in a circumstance of dealing with the racial tension, the yeah. LGBTQ, you know, all of those things that we're, we're trying to balance. How do you, how do you instill that in people? Well, I simply would say this, do you have enough people to get your job done? And by and large, most people would say, no, I could use some more people. I could use some more time. So why in God's name would you reject or not nurture, grow, develop one of your airmen because of something that you personally might have an issue with, right? So if, if you're that person that it, let's say all these airmen, and I don't care, I don't care who, who they are, right? You know, black, white, brown, Asian, hetero, homosexual, transgender, don't, don't care. If you meet the qualifications to do the job and you have the right attitude and you're motivated and you come to work and you want to be part of the mission, then, then we need to go, you know, okay, we're building our team and we're moving out. So I guess my point to them would be is, I don't think we're in a place, one, out of necessity, where we can tell anybody they got to get lost, right? So that's just a, that's just a, a practical standpoint, right? I, I don't have enough humans to do that. So every human that I get that's qualified to come, I need to get them pointed in the right direction and get on with the mission. So that's number one. Number two, can you imagine putting yourself in their shoes and working for a commander that didn't give them the time of day because of something they probably didn't have any control of? You know, you know, you know, you show up to work as a woman. You didn't choose to be born a woman, right? You just don't pop out and, you know, you're off to your life. And society starts to bend people and society starts to think. So if you showed up to work and all of a sudden your commander or your first sergeant or your supervisor started to give you grief over your skin color, right? And and you just want to work. Can you imagine being that? I would say by and large, most of the people growing up in the Air Force that are, that are white men in particular haven't experienced that for the most part. It's very, it's a, Broad generalization here, right? So we're going to say that they probably haven't experienced it. So if they need to put themselves in their shoes and say, hey, am I creating an environment where all airmen are welcome to come in and and be a part of this team and do something really great? Um, and the, and then the last thing I would say is that's when you can do that, just like we talked about, when you can do that, man, it's powerful. You know, I had, a, I had an airman at Lake and Heath who – one of the very first um, airmen that was transitioning to being a woman and was way out in front of the policy, right? And way out in front of the policy and all that stuff. And everybody was like, hey, he's briefing you, the wing commander, at stand-up three days a week, right? And, and, and some of my maintenance leadership, some of the lower maintenance leadership was like, hey, we can, swap, we can swap them out so you can have somebody else. And I'm like, are they not good? You know, now we were dealing with the transgender policy at the time. Yeah, it kept changing. I remember. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're like trying to figure it out. And I said, listen, if mm -hmm. so, if they look professional and they're in uniform and they can present the information, why would I not want them to do that? And so do, do I have, did I have issues with the policy? I got issues with the policy that we got to figure this out. We got to make it right. We got to, we got to understand the nuances of it. And, and we need to stop using it as kind of a football between uh, political parties. We need to really focus on the command element and the mission team and make sure we got it right. Um, but I didn't have any problems there. And I, he came up to, she, she came, I apologize. She came up to me later on and had an office call with me and said, you let me continue briefing. I'm like, well, why wouldn't I, you, know, you did a good job. And so they were fully expecting to be kind of rejected by the, mm -hmm. by the audience. And so when we got, you know, everybody on board, it, you can do some powerful things. Yeah, I, re I remember I was actually um, through my through my clinical capacity, I was also a, a clinician in, in her care. So I, I remember the situation well. Um, and that was I, I can only imagine what it was like for her because we it was like the policy changed once a week. We had no idea on the medical side. We had no idea what we were allowed to do. And um, it was very challenging. So that's 
I, I can only imagine what a a positive that must have been in her life to at least still be taken seriously as a professional, even with all of this upheaval going back and forth. And I'm sure feeling jerked around um, by, you know, by the system and even by medical because we, our, our direction literally changed like once a week for a while there. So, um, yeah, I think I told the commanders, I said, you know, they're your airmen, no matter what. They're your airmen still today, still tomorrow. And as long as they're meeting standards and adhering to the code of conduct and the uniform and they're doing their job, you're going to treat them with respect. We're not going to I go. There's all this policy drama that's going on. There were some political manifestations that were permeating into the policy. And I said, you got to decouple that. And, and the command team, chain of command, higher headquarters guidance, the lawyers will work on that. But in the meantime, you're going to treat those people with respect. And you're going to and they're going to, you're going to get them to come to work every day. And so, you know, we got to decouple that right now. So that's, I think, something that helped. Obviously, you are comfortable having these conversations and leaning into these conversations. One of the difficulties that a lot of people have, especially coming from, you know, the majority population, whatever that might be in the room, is the fear of making a mistake, of of saying something Mm -hmm. that makes it worse. Like, I I think a lot of well-meaning people, that's their big fear, is trying to engage and making things worse. And obviously, at the levels that you've been at, you had no choice whether to engage or not. So how did you approach that? I was well beyond where I thought I was ever going to be in the Air Force. But I figured <laughs> you I was, nothing to lose. <laughs> I, was not, I was playing with house money. You know, <laughs> you know it's funny, Mary. We had a, uh, we had a squadron commander call. Uh, well, I met with the squadron commanders all the time. Like, and we'd have lunches, you know, very private lunches. And so one of your medical squadron commanders um had told me he was uh we were talking about uh, taking risk and i was telling people you're not you're not pushing hard enough you're not taking enough risk i got your back i knew who I, it was yeah you know who it was <laughs> and, and he was he was a good commander but he was had been inculcated at his squadron command training to to essentially not be a risk taker for fear of being fired yeah. And I said, if you walk around and you're afraid of being fired, I'm going to fire you, right? Because <laughs> you're out. Like, you're going to, like, if you aren't, if you're afraid to come tell me bad news, I'm going to fire you, right? Uh, you know, and I meant that facetiously, but I really did. I was like, I don't, we, we're in the military. Our job is to get people together, train them and go kill, kill bad people. How could we be afraid to cut to confront issues, you know what I mean? I used to always say that, right? You know, if you're, if you're, if, if you're aggressive about getting the mission done, you're a good steward of the, of the, you know, the resources you've been given and you treat people with respect, right? You have nothing to worry about in the United States Air Force. Move out, you know? So be aggressive about the, get the mission done. Be a, re, be a good steward of the resources, money, airplanes, equipment, airmen right and treat people with respect what you, you are slowing you're going backwards if you're waiting for me right you know and that's kind of what I, my philosophy was and i was very fortunate to also have some really good leaders that just let me off the chain right so general Gorns from the safety and my two nav commanders um there's a little bit of you know we could we could go into why that is i could you know there's some things I knew what they were really interested in i made those my priority i got green on those things immediately ahead of all the other commanders. And then I was able to do whatever I wanted because I'd address their issue, my command issues. I'm like, that's addressed, that's addressed, that's green. And then it was off to the races. And they really, truly, it was kind of game. They really, truly was, well, you know, Rob Novotny's got Lake and he, what does he need now? I'm like, I need, you know, $1.5 million for new security forces building and, you know, get rid of these bushes. <laughs> so, you said a couple of things that I'm, I'm entertained about, um, but the, the part about getting fired, I think that's kind of how you have to look at most things as a leader is you have to get to a point where you have to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and be happy with what you see. And so Chris and I threw out our commands at Charleston and him, you know, this year, uh, this last two years, we, we had so many moments where we're like, okay, if this is what I get fired for. I can live with this. If this is what's on the cover of military times. So I think that freedom and obviously, you know, having a professional degree that makes me marketable on the outside is, is a nice, you know, that's a nice bonus knowing that if I wasn't there, I could walk out the door and get a good job. But I think that you kind of have to have almost that little bit of kamikaze of wanting to do the best, wanting to do the right thing, but truly recognizing that if this is the end, if this is, this is the hill that I die on, 
I'm proud of this hill. So I'm going to make this hill my own. And, and really, if it's not like that, then you need to not fight those battles and, and, and let them go somewhere else. Kind of. Yeah, there's a difference in between aggressive leadership and, and recklessness. Right. I mean, so first of all, I don't think we fire enough people in the Air Force. So as we're talking about it, um, I think we should. But but the reason we don't fire them is because we tolerate their poor performance and we don't want to deal with the drama of relieving somebody. So in, an, in a for profit in the private sector, they wouldn't tolerate that. You'd be gone. Right. So what do you read about from people getting fired? They're usually sleeping with subordinates. Right. Or they're not toxic leaders because we overuse that term too much. They're like ridiculously stupid leaders. They, they, they do something stupid. They mismanage their team and make them go get their dry cleaning for them, right? They're, they're abusing government resources because they're either not following the travel rules. And we're not talking about a mistake, right? I, I made mistakes in command you know, all the time. I mean, I made a mistake like every day. Right. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about people who know the rules and they're moving out in the wrong direction. And so they're violating those three things. They're not getting the mission done. So we we find a lot of people who don't get the mission done very well and we continue to keep them in command. I think we had to fire them. Right. They're not moving their team forward. They're not inspiring. You know, I'd much rather move a major into a lieutenant colonel spot who I thought might be able to lead better than that. And the reason we you did move- with me. Yeah. <laughs> you were- so, you know, so uh, I had a lot of, I had a lot of people like that. We didn't have a DO for uh, equipment uh, maintenance squadron. And I grabbed one of the Wizzos, so one of the backseat F-15 uh, operators, moved him over, completely killed it, sent him to maintenance school and everything. And he went in and he brought a level of, of diversity, not, not diversity from um, uh, an ethnic perspective, but diversity. He was an operator. He was a flyer. And we made him the number two person in charge of a uh, flying squadron and with you as well right you know and you all killed it so um anyway i think if you're not if you're aggressive moving out and you're getting after it and you're you know respecting people and you're good steward, you're not going to get fired but you know it's difficult to tell people the first time in command to get hurt i think that's i think that's really true i almost feel like people should command twice and I mean, I guess that's why you want them to command at the at the rising echelons. But so you you mentioned the firing people, and so I talked to General Gorens about that. He was he was one of our mentors as well. And um, so I have a few perspectives. Number one, I can't stand the loss of confidence cap cop out. I feel like it's cop out. I feel like the initial thing should be they've been removed pending investigation. And then afterwards it should be what they actually did so we can all learn and be better. Maybe not publicly. I mean, I know FOIA, all that kind of stuff, but I think within the service we need to do a better job of helping people understand where the lines were crossed. Cause it's rarely a line. It's usually a progression. It's usually a gray area for a long time. There are sometimes it's a line, sometimes it's a zipper, but a lot of times it's a continuum of bad behavior. And mm-hmm. we're not, we don't let people learn from that as much as we, and, and as someone who's teaching that kind of thing right now, I really wish we had more details on some of that stuff so we could help people understand where people went wrong. But I mentioned firing and how it kind of is the kiss of death. And General Gorant said, he was like, it's not. He's like, I don't know anyone who was forced to retire. A lot of people do retire. He's like, I don't know anybody that was forced to retire after being re- removed from command. They get moved to other jobs and their command and their career doesn't keep moving forward. But if well, they, they couldn't, but if they couldn't command, why should it? Because that's like, because that's the pinnacle of leadership. If you, if you, we're going to make someone a flag officer, we're going to make them, you know, really it's on some level, it's channeling to see who's available to be our chief of staff and that kind of, so if they can't do it there, then put them somewhere else, but they shouldn't move forward if they couldn't do this successfully. And I thought that was a really interesting perspective. So I'd be curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, there's a lot there, uh, Mary, you know, so first of all, we, I fired squadron commander at Lake and Heath and, um, uh, I had all the squadron commanders, the group commanders and the chiefs come in and I debriefed them on why I fired the squadron commander. I don't think now this is where it gets into the, like, how much should we know and stuff like that. So I told them exactly what it was. Uh, the JA was kind of like, ah, I don't think it. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm going to, we're not going to have any rumors. That's going right. to slow. Down. We're going to talk about this. Right. And I also wanted to make it clear to the one squadron commander we talked about what it took to get fired in the wing, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, now me firing a maintenance squadron commander, is that relevant to Aviano? I don't know. 
right? You know, I think maybe in an academic situation where we go over like, hey, here's how people got fired and all that stuff, uh, maybe sure that that would be appropriate. But definitely Aviano didn't need to know my business why I was relieving a commander. I, sure. You know, the Walmart in, in Charlotte, North Carolina fires their management. The Walmart in Las Vegas doesn't. Sure, sure. Well, not the people. The, I don't want the people, but the details in the, you know, the, the case, the case study, not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're talking about, hey, this person mismanaged this and they, they you'd, you'd like, you'd like to know it was a take to get fired. I think the concern there is exactly, you know, just because you get fired, you might still continue to serve. Um, we're, we're wildly public, and, you know what I mean? Like the public's going to know our business. And so if I get fired, is that like totally in, is that completely derail my chapter two? You know, am I ever going to have a job again? Cause right. I sure don't, I sure don't know if they're firing the manager at target. Like that's not Fox news, right? You know, CNN's not reporting on that, but they will. If a squatter, like the Vance swing commander, I think just got fired. Right. Mm -hmm. It was all over military time or when Thunderbird one got fired, it was yeah. on, it was on BBC headlines. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, and I'm kind of, and I, and I know, and you know, we knew Thunderbird mm -hmm. one. Yes. At the time. And they're like, wow, that's a that's a heavy burden to pay for his family for an internal organization. And he's a person. He's a great he's a great guy and he's a person. Yeah. And so yeah. that being on the other side of it is, you know, it's it, people forget there's a person on the other end of that story. I will say this. I will say this in defense of the organization. Almost everybody I know who got fired, they got fired for like, I like mind blowing. Why were you doing? Right. <laughs> so it was it was like, warranted is what you're saying. Right. You no, know, like, oh, you know, uh, you know, the two-star general, the public report came out, was having an affair with a second lieutenant. Okay. Do I do like does the team need to know not to do that? I kind of go. You should know not to do that. So right? I, I feel like the zipper, you know, they say, you know, um what is it, drive your own car. Um uh -huh you know, sleep pick up your own dry cleaning and sleep with your own spouse. And, and, right. So, and I think that those are fairly clear for a lot of people, but I think the, the toxic, you, you mentioned, we overuse toxic work environment um, and toxic leadership. Um, a lot of the loss of confidence things, when you look at them, it's, and these are the ones, I guess these are the ones that it kind of as uh, from an academic standpoint, I have a harder time with is you'll have multiple tiers of people fired or, you know, or multiple people moved around and, you know, the, based on our hierarchy and how it's supposed to work, if the squadron level, if the low level, you know, the lowest G series order person is responsible, then how is the wing commander responsible and vice versa? It's like firing the VP of marketing and the CEO. Like if one of them is wrong, then how is the other one wrong too? Is And I, so I, I think that's one of the ones where it's like, I'd like to understand the climate more and how they were supposed to function differently at their levels. Yeah or where they failed at their levels to create this, that, that mindset. Yeah. So, I mean, in general, listen, I totally agree with you. I think when people get removed from command, it's a big deal. And it'd be interesting to understand what were the conditions and what was the thing. And I, ideally it's under the, it's under the guise that we want to be a learning organization and we want to avoid doing whatever he or she did to get removed from command. I'm, I'm totally, I'm down with that. What I, what I find is that the people who get fired, they get fired for the most insane stuff <laughs> that like, you don't have to be a learning organization to know not to steal money, right? <laughs> I mean, like, we have to like, so, so there's this, right? So there's this natural tension. I think the organization wants to preserve, uh, well, the Navy's really good about telling everybody how they fired a ship captain and they throw it right out there, right? And I think they do that in order to engender a level of trust with, with our legislators and our oversight body in Congress. And I, there's value in that, right? And I think if we can do that, I think we should um, to prove to you know, our taxpayer, you know, American citizens who we work for, our government, which has our oversight, hey, that we, we have a, a line of character and values and performance. And if they cross that line, um, then they're not gonna be fit for command, we're gonna remove them. Sure. And then how do we get out and communicate that in a way that as a learning organization, we can learn from that and internalize it. But at the same time, we're not going to completely Joan of Arc somebody and burn them at the stake because they just weren't good in that job, you know? So I think that's why they'd use a loss of confidence. 
that's usually, I find that usually the loss of confidence and trust is usually when they're just not a good leader, right? It's a substantiated thing. It's not gross, but it's a substantiated thing. It's a busted inspection here. It's rumors and innuendos coming here. And now the commander's like, man, there's too much drama going on in that organization because the person at the top is just not effective. And I've lost confidence and trust in you to lead and you need to go, right? And then it's like, hey, do I want to come out with all the gory details and tell you, or do you just trust me? Well, it's kind of what it is. That's, that's what the, I think that's what the organization's trying to figure out. Yeah, no, I can, I can see that. So with all of this experience and all of the things you accomplished, what's going on now? Yeah. Yeah. I love uh, what I'm doing now, which is I started a little consulting uh, company. I got my, my own website out there, skyracerconsulting.com. And oh my goodness. Uh, that's my pitch, right? And then um, <laughs> I consult for a variety of companies, mostly very focused on defense um, and aerospace and emerging technology kind of stuff. So, and I've kind of got the gamut. I consult for a movie company. I consult for a social media company. I consult for two companies building airplanes um, that are kind of unique little airplanes, a couple of startups. And then I do some other stuff on a contract in the government doing tech evaluation and getting it into the federal spaces. I, I love... Uh, well, I've always loved, you know, young, exciting, innovative things. And so I get to be a part of that right now. And, and um, I'm trying to use my uh, connections in the government to get people. I, I don't get paid to connect people. Um, like, I don't, I, like I don't, I haven't, I don't get a profit from that. So uh, I get to make these connections and move people together. And hopefully that we can bring um, some tools. And you mentioned artificial intelligence at the beginning of the podcast, you know, so anything in that realm and get that into the hands of our warfighters faster um, so that we can keep pace on the changing world environment. That's Love fantastic. It. So what you're consulting with a few different types of organizations, like what is the angle of consulting? Are you, is it business optimization? Like, what are you, what are you looking at? You know, I think most people uh, see that I've done quite a bit of work in aviation, right? So I've obviously been a pilot my whole life, uh, but I was a test pilot twice and commanded the test organizations. And then um, I've done requirements and acquisition on the Air Combat Command staff. So they've kind of seen that I've owned a, quite a bit of the life cycle from how, like, we need a requirement. Okay, we go out and, and we do contracts and we look to, and then we onboard them in some lower technical readiness level. And then how do we evolve that, move it forward? Um, and so I, th I think they see that I add value in their uh, stages of development as, as the startups to make sure they're kind of uh, talking to the right people to gain interest. They, a lot of them have a really cool idea. They don't know how to get it in. They don't know, like in its form function, would the government have, would the government see value in that? And so I do a lot of use case development. So oh, wow. for example, uh, uh, working with a solar powered unmanned platform um, from a group at, out of uh, Stanford and, and we're working on like, hey, if we're at 60,000 feet for 45 or 60 days, does that add value? And we're like, yeah, it adds value for HADR. So humanitarian assistance disaster response. I can move this over Africa and have 5G on a very, you know, normal, on a very localized area for 60 days. Um, I could fly it in over a hurricane. And as a hurricane's coming ashore in the Southeast, this thing is already up and doing full spectrum communications, but even during the hurricane, so people can connect the first responders, they can do, you know, location, they can do imaging. I mean, that's an example where I'm helping them with some strategy development and use case analysis. That's a couple of things. I'm that thinking. is so exciting. You get to see these things, that they're, these ideas as they come up and see all the applications. That's so yeah, fun. It's awesome. On Tuesday, I fly to Palo Alto. I go meet with them and I'm going to go see them in their warehouse and they're building the full scale now, right now. So they built a little plane already and they test flight, you know, the, the flight control laws and stuff like that. And they're building a, a big model now. So that's going to be fun. Wow. And, and obviously, you know, anything that's going in the air, your familiarity with the rules of the road up there, you know, is going to help with that as well. That's awesome. Yeah, it's good. It's great. I love it. I guess because you ascended to such a level um, within the service, you had a lot of interaction with industry and civilian leaders and that kind of stuff. Uh, so how was that transition? I know it can be harder for people that don't necessarily, that are a little more insulated from the public. Yeah. I think it's hard no matter what. And, I, and yeah. it, 
um, you know, transitioning, whether you're a staff sergeant or you're a general officer or everything in between, um, it's hard because you, you're leaving such a cohesive team, assuming you're in a good place, right? Uh, assuming you're, you're an upstanding, you know, military person and you're in good, you're in good standing with, you know, if you leave under other conditions and it's easy to get out, sort of, but you're probably in an organization you enjoy coming to work. Uh, you're probably very talented at your craft because we, we in the military do a lot to invest in our people, right? You're at our work college, you've been to tech schools and probably done leadership development along the way. So we do a lot of investment and you're going to uh, decouple from a, a place where you know the code, right? You have your own set of laws, you have your own culture, you wear your own tribal markings. Our own um, language, <laughs> your yes, 100%. <laughs> and you're basically, you know, you're swimming away from the island and you're going to this other island where truly, you know, like when I, when I'm downtown or something and, and people will always still introduce me as, you know, General Navani, they're like, I've never met a general before. And I'm like, well, our regular people too, you know? So I think that transition is hard for everybody because you've got to, you know, my advice to anybody taking the transition is take some time off and really, um, you know, allow that to marinate and settle and, and, and figure out what you want to do going forward. What are the things you don't want to do? And what are the things you do want to do? Cause there's quite a bit of opportunities. And, you know, for me, I still struggle with that. You know, I, uh, I, I, I probably had a little bit more runway left in the air force to go do some other things. And, and maybe there were some other really great opportunities to um, keep moving forward. So I knew that I was very, I was very trained and I was good at it and I enjoyed coming to work. I loved uh, the men and women around me and, and I believed in the mission. So decoupling from that was a, very hard because I had, I think I had some more to go. Uh, but you know, for the family and everything, jump, jumping out and, and was the right time. And so I'm still, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do. You know, that's why I love the consulting business because I'm so um, kind of all over the globe with the companies I'm working with and things they're having me do. So it's a great, you know, while I'm trying to figure out long-term what I want to do. I, I feel like I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> so I, the list doesn't really seem to get any shorter. Like I still, I take something off and then I have to there's a lot of, you know, for your listeners, there's a lot of great opportunities out there and they should not be, they should, you know, they, they'll be nervous, but they shouldn't be worried about it because it, like I said, if they're, if they're pretty well trained and they understand how to work with a team and they um, have a good set of character values and stuff like that, um, they're probably in demand in the private sector and somebody will employ them and get them going for sure. Yeah. So what qualities do you think that we have as a military that transition best into the civilian lifestyle? Um, well, I think one of them is our ability to integrate with people from all over the planet, right? Um, so you could be at Aviano and um, you're living in Italy and you're integrating with the Italians off base. And then when you come on base, you know, you got uh, people from Alabama, people from California, people from Alaska, people from Hawaii, people from New York in your unit, tall, short, men, women, gay, straight, white, black, you got all of that. And, and if you're going to be any successful in that organization, you got to say, great, these are my, this is my box of 64 crayons. I'm going to paint the Sistine Chapel, right? I'm not going to complain about it. I'm going to go, how do I, how do I take all these different people and get them aligned in a single uh, purpose, communicate it down to the lowest level so everybody understands and then hold people accountable as we move forward. And if you can do that in the private sector, it's, listen, they're, they don't have, they, they have not cornered the market on diversity, inclusion. Um, tr there's a lot of companies I deal with that, that, are far less um, diversified than the military. And we beat ourselves up because we'd like to be, right? When we look at our senior leadership, we see mostly white men. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, we don't see a lot of women that have excelled. We've got, a, we've got a few that are coming up, but it's still taking, we're not assessing enough. We're not keeping enough, you know, we're not uh, moving them up the ranks, but we acknowledge that. And we can look in the mirror and say, hey, we, there's things that we're doing that are good. Um, we want to make sure we're not doing these bad things um, and we need to, what are our best practices and how do we move forward? 
Now, there's a lot of companies that aren't doing that in the private sector. So I think one thing that we do well is we can just be thrown into any kind of unique situation and look around the room. Nobody really looks like us or, or it doesn't matter. And, and I can build a team and get something done. What advice would you give to a young leader as they are trying to excel in the military or outside? Either one. Yeah. First, don't take yourself so serious. You know, um, you're human, right? And you're gonna you're gonna get dressed the same way everybody else does, right? You've got your own fears, and you've got your own um, biases, and you've got you know your own shortcomings. And we're all not as good as we think we are. In some cases, we've got a little bit of you know some some you have a little bit of imposter syndrome sometimes. So don't take yourself so serious, right? And with that means you you gotta relax and you've gotta enjoy. Um, being a, a leader. And I think if you relax and you're, and you're having fun, people will find you approachable. People will find you authentic. Um, they won't see you standoffish. And that's going to fertilize the communication soil, right? And so that's going to make you a better leader because you're going to know how the unit's doing. You're going to know where their shortcomings are. You're going to know what their strengths are. You're going to know who's who needs help. And, and that's going to make you a good leader, I think. So don't take yourself too serious. That's for sure. I like that. It's, it's, it's really hard to do sometimes, you know, because you want so badly to do the right thing so badly to, to be the best for yourself or for the people around you. I mean, I think we, we all have kind of competing interests at times in, in how we want to excel, but um, it's very easy to get caught up. The, the one that I kind of told myself because of the beginning you feel so people stand up when you walk in the room, they call, you know, people are getting, you know, you mentioned you want coffee, it appears and you have to stop them. And, and so really understanding that you can't believe your own hype, uh, I think is, uh, is also. <laughs> I used to tell people, you know, we'd have, it was funny because my wife Dawn would have young airmen spouses come over to our wing commander house at Lake and Heath, which I don't know if you've been over there. It was this huge thing. And it's at the top of the cul-de-sac, right? <laughs> it's this, and they were just, you know, gobs, maybe the eyeballs out and everything. And they would say, oh, your house. And I'm like, hey, it's just a rental. <laughs> this is what they gave me. I didn't have a chance. I'm a temp, right? And I would tell all the young commanders, I'm like, it's not about you. It's about the patch, right? It's about your unit's patch, right? And the question is, are you going to leave that unit patch better than you got handed it today, right? Um the people before you, by and large, tried their very best with the tools and the information they had to, to do a good job. So let's not bash prior commanders, right? That's 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 sport for JV leaders. You know, when they go, oh, I'm so much better than them. I'm like, no, you need to shut up. They, they did the very best they could with what they had in the conditions and, and, and they moved out. And they But they've handed you the unit as it is in its current state. And your whole goal is to move that unit a little bit better on the you know on the pecking order of whatever your metric is in two years when you hand over the unit if you've done that then you've been a good commander right and we will probably reward you and move you out now the level of which you move it up and the status that you're handed it are all a function of i think who differentiates other commanders from others right mm -hmm. you know a lot of people are like hey my unit doesn't have any duis my unit <laughs> comes to work on time and my unit I'm like, that's great. You're like a frog. You know, you exist. You know, there's a lot of squatter commanders that just existed, you know, and their units stayed out of the headlines and all that stuff. And I would be like, that's really boring, you know. And then I had other units that were like, we're out doing this and we're doing this. And they'd fall and skin their knee and they, you know, and then we'd have to kind of like, hey, come back over here. You know what I mean? And, and they, but they were, they were constantly, you know, just hungry for, for moving their people forward and getting something done. And, you know, and I wasn't, I was much more like, okay, what are they going to do this week? You know? <laughs> Good or bad. We're going to have something. Tara <laughs> uh, Opalowski was my squadron commander. Excuse She's me. retiring. I know. I know. I sent her a long note. We had a great chat. And, you know, was she the greatest squadron commander to ever walk the play? No, I don't think anybody is, but I can tell you what, that squadron was moving with purpose, right? Now, were they going in the right direction all the time? I don't know, but they were moving, right? They were, there was activity, there was culture, there was, things were moving out, things were moving out. And, and by the way, the security forces, they had a they had no shortage of discipline challenges, right? They had DUIs and they had all that stuff. And, uh, you know, 
but but the fact that the command and the leadership team and the culture that Tara created in the Spartans was continuing to advance and move those things. I was like, this is, this is, we are making progress, mm-hmm. right? And she was a fantastic squadron. Conversely, there's another squadron over here that had none of the discipline problems, none of the DUIs and all that stuff. But I was like, I don't even care because they were just existing. They were just, water. Yeah, squatting. And I'm like, hey, you need to like pick up your game. So young commanders should not, uh, if they are hungry, aggressive about getting the mission done, they're making a culture, their people want to come to work they're going to make, and then they're being a good commander, right? I've had it. So I'm at the point now, which is crazy that a few of my airmen are getting ready to take command and are going into that. And so I I know, right. (laughs) And so um, I talked to, to one the other day and a couple of pieces of advice. I'm I'm interested to hear if I was way off. (laughs) Um, One, I told them, whatever you see, whatever the big rocks you see, whatever the, you know, the bad wallpaper that you see, remember that this is not the same squadron as it was two years ago. And so if you don't understand why why they've been putting energy in these areas, it's because it worked. And so the problem, because the problems they had when they got there, if they put energy into them, they're not going to look like problems to you. So don't judge them for whatever you think. How come they're ignoring X, Y, Z and they're focusing on ABC? Well, ABC were the bad ones when they got here. So don't, don't focus on that. Just listen to what they have to say, but also understand that you can't believe your own hype and command. Cause if they were a good commander, you're going to look really good the first year <laughs> because a lot of things that you incorporate in command, if you do great processes as a leader, if you do good stuff that lasts rather than just trying to build a bullet legacy that, that goes away with you, it doesn't all show up in, in your two years. It shows up right. on the third or fourth year. And so trying to think about, kind of what what you just said about the patch rather than your your own you know your own resume really resonated with me because that's really what I th- think of is build a process that matters that may not get you credit but makes the squatter more productive in two years or three years or four years 100 110 uh, I was a squadron commander for the um, 67th fighter squadron and, and and when I came in we kind of laid out this map to win what was called the huge trophy the Raytheon trophy and it was the trophy for the best fighter squadron in the United States Air Force. And um, we, the squadron had won it when I was a major in the squadron because we'd gone to war and we'd done some really great things, very great culture, great squadron. And then the squadron kind of went into a little bit of the doldrums, like normal. And, you know, people turned over and they hadn't won it in forever. And so when I showed up, I'm like, this is it. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to get on this path. We're going to get to it. So we started hiring people, fired like three people, like, you know, you know, people got, we moved stuff out, changed process, moved out. And then I gave up command. We never won it when I was in command. They won it two out of the next three years. Right. And so I was sitting there like, <laughs> right. <laughs> and I was excited because I guess I, I was bummed. Cause I was like, Oh man, you know, but at the same time I was like, okay, cool. That's proof to me that I planted trees that grew into shade that I would never enjoy. Right. There's a great book called Legacy that I made all my commanders read. It was about the New Zealand All Blacks uh, rugby team. Oh my gosh, so good. You got it, yeah. So they talk about planting trees that will produce shade that you'll never enjoy, right? That other people will enjoy. And so I think that's what leaders should focus on. Without a doubt, they're going to have things or their chain of command is going to want them to get after. Like I said, I I had those things. And you need to move those uh, up front and get on them. That's what you've been put in command for because we all have bosses and they've probably got a good sight picture probably of what they want to work on. Um, and then big ears, little mouth for a little bit of time in the squadron. Not, I don't want you to have 90 days. Everybody talks about this like 30, 60, 90. I think 90 is too long, but you know, big ears, little mouth, talk to people, get to know them and, and problems will, will present themselves that you'll want to get after. And, and like you said, and I also said, don't assume the people before you were idiots. You know, when I got to Lake and Heath, my predecessor uh, had a, they had a massive problem with DUIs. It just, it just was, you know, and they were having DUIs and were, you know what I mean? And, and, and he got after it and it was a big push. And I know this, you know, and they got the DUIs under control, whatever, you know, that's, this is like trying to catch a fish, right? I mean, it's just, sometimes you get one, and, but they really focused on it and the DUIs really came down. So when I got in command, I didn't even talk about it. 
You know, I was like, this is squadron business. You squadron commanders, you need to, you know, you, you, we know what the rules are. You, you all handle this or I'm going to handle it. And if I handle it, then that's ugly, right? Because then <laughs> now I'm a big dumb animal and I'm going to swing a club around. And I don't, but I don't want to deal with this. This is y'all's business. And our DUIs, I didn't have to worry about it because previous leadership had focused their energy, their energy and their efforts on it. And, and they really kind of got it in a, uh, you know, they got it back down into the noise level per se, but I went and focused on other things. So just like you said, yeah, don't, don't assume everybody before you is stupid because they're not, they were a squadron commander they got picked and they, and they, they had to fight what they had to fight. And two years is a long time. It, it can be. <laughs> I was so exhausted afterwards. I don't know how Chris been, this is, he's finishing his fourth year and I'm just amazed at his energy at this point. So, and, and through COVID and racial unrest yeah. and it, it's, it's been a, an eventful, eventful. I think it's good that we change commanders about every 24 months. You know, you're a, you're a fitness, you know, I know, I know you and your fitness, right? You can't just work upper body for two years. Right. You're be out of balance. Right. And it's going to lead to injuries and then you're not going to train. So you got to have muscle confusion. You got to have balance. You got to have full spectrum fitness in your body. You got to exercise the whole machine and commanders come in for two years and a lot of times they're like, hey, we just finished squatting, you know, and I can't feel my legs. And so we're not going to squat for a while, but we're going to work. But clearly we need to work on our shoulders and our delts and our traps. And we're going to start working on that. Now, in the, you know, the, the continuum of the unit, which is going to last 50, 60, 80, 100 years, those two years in my mind are kind of like muscle confusion. Like the organization doesn't need to squat because we've been squatting. We need to work on this for a little bit. You know what I mean? And the commander's going to do good stuff. And then the next commander's going to come in and be like, hey, we haven't squatted in one. We need to start <laughs> squatting again, right? And that's great. And that keeps the, you know, it keeps the unit nimble and responsive. And so I think that works in, in a lot of ways by keeping the turnover. We'd all like to stay longer or sometimes we'd like to stay shorter. But um, when it's going good, you want to stick around. That is That is so true. So closing thoughts, if you could give everyone one thought to bring it all together, what would, you, what would you tell everyone? Leadership's a blessing. It's a huge responsibility. There were many, many sleepless nights I had. Not ever really worried about the mission, but worried about people. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and I just treated every day uh, like it was going to be my last day in command. So I was going to do something that day. I was going to fix a problem. Um, I found I had so much work to do when I took care of other people's problems, just completely charged my battery. And that was good. And because I felt like I was able to connect and solve small problems, the big problems suddenly became very easy because now people bought in, right? So people said, Hey, um, that commander's interested in me. That commander fixed small problems. And now when it came time to a big problem, it was very easy to marshal the resources and the people and, the, and move it that direction because they, they said, well, the, the boss is a problem solver. So I think for young commanders, fix something small. Don't, don't think you got to go. I wrote an article about this at Lake and Heath about move the chains, right? And, and so don't think you're going to come in and go, I'm going to be the greatest squadron commander. We're going to deploy. We're going to defeat Russia. <laughs> well, your chances are, you know, What you ought to do is come in and go, you know what? We could use some new tools or, hey, people need to come to work on time or (laughs) we've been delinquent in this category. So there's a lot of small problems out there. And if you and by the way, ask people like, hey, what's bugging you? What's the rock in your shoe that's keeping you from being more effective at work? Well, maybe it's this bureaucracy or maybe it's this process or maybe it's this, hey, I don't have a printer. And, And if you go find these small things and you start, you know, playing whack-a-mole and you make them go away, you're, there's a time's going to come when you're going to ask your airman, like, hey, I really need you to deploy and go fight and do something big. And if you've been able to start ball, build momentum, people will buy into you. They'll think you're a good leader. They'll, they'll see that you're a leader of purpose and action. And, um, and then I think the bigger problems become much easier to solve. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. It's great to see you, Mary. Thank you for what you're doing and trying to advance the leadership education of our folks. We totally need it. We need it. Thank you. So that's been our discussion with Brigadier General Retired Rob Novotny. 
Hopefully you enjoyed it. If you did, give it a like, subscribe, or share with a friend. If you didn't, drop me a note on what I could do better. Next week, we'll talk about cancel culture and why we need to get rid of it if we want to move forward. Thanks again for joining Level the Pursuit. While we can't choose where we start, we can choose our dreams and how we pursue them. Remember, success is a team sport and there's room for all of us to achieve our goals. So be a good leader, be a good follower, and do something great. <laughs>